Welcome to The Chain, the podcast exploring the lives, careers, research, and discoveries of protein engineers, scientists, and biotech professionals. We look at the impact their work is having on the field and where the industry is headed. Tune in to stay up to date on the newest advancements and to hear the stories that are impacting the world of biologics. All right. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to this podcast. I'm excited to be here. My name is Brandon Dukoski. I'm here with Charlotte Dean, who is from the University of Oxford, uh, the Department of Statistics. Hi, Charlotte. Hi. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's great to, great to be chatting with you. Um, so uh, Charlotte has an upcoming talk at the 14th Annual PEGS Europe Conference in Barcelona. And Charlotte's going to be talking about machine learning and informatics for antibody discovery. Um, so, uh, Charlotte, um, maybe as we get started, we'd love to learn a little bit about you, um, where you trained and, and uh, what your specialty was. So I guess I'll start from my undergrad, and this is where I have to admit I haven't moved very far. So I did my undergrad actually at Oxford, and I was a chemist originally, though completely honestly, I ran away from everything that was to do with having to work in the lab. It became very clear very quickly I was meant to be on a computer and work on the mathematical side of the subject. After that, I went to do my um, PhD in Cambridge. And there is really where I moved into the kind of field of bioinformatics. So I, I worked with um, Professor Sir Tom Blundell there and did a lot of work trying to understand sort of protein structure, protein function, links between those and the interactions between them. I then went off to UCLA for a short period of time, working with David Eisenberg there, um, continuing in that kind of area. And then I was lucky enough to come back to Oxford to become a, an academic in the Department of Statistics. So in one way, I have been to some other places, but in other ways, it feels like I'm fully institutionalized into Oxford these days. Sounds good. Well, you've got that California cred, so um, <laughs> that's great. That's great. Uh, and and so what is the group setting or, or position like where you are now? I'm incredibly lucky, actually. So within Oxford, um, I work in the Department of Statistics and I run a, a large research group there. There's about 25 to 30 people in it. Um, across sort of um, doctoral students and postdocs, and um, there's another academic within it as well. And the setting I'm, you know, I've been very lucky about the way we've managed to get to work so that I have a huge number of external collaborations across Oxford University, other universities, and with industry to kind of be able to do experimental computational kind of feedback loops within that as well. So my, I, that's really great for me. And just, I think for full transparency, as well as holding that position at Oxford, I'm also um, CSO Biologics AI for what I think is called now a scale up um, Exientia, which is based just outside of, well, I'd say it's inside Oxford, but a little bit away from the university. That's great. How is a, how is a scale up different from a startup? Well, this is what I've been told to say, so I, I'm still learning. Um, I think it's because we're now about 450, 500 people. So you can't really say you're a little startup at that point. I think you're you're starting to say you're, you're a proper sized company to do things, but you're still in that kind of growth phase of, of making things happen. That's, okay. I'm, I'm still learning the terminology for this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. That sounds really exciting. Uh, when When it comes to your research group, do you all focus entirely on computational systems 
do you do you have any experimental in-house or do you collaborate closely with experiments? Um, just curious what that setting is like. So I have, if you like, within my direct lab, we don't have any experimental work, but I have several students and postdocs who are, if you like, work across two labs. So they work in an experimental lab as well as working with me computationally. Mm -hmm. Even more than that, I have a very large number of external collaborations where we're working with a team that is doing large-scale experimental work. And in particular, I found that really powerful working with industry because many of the platforms for, you know, in the in the world of kind of the immunoinformatics world, many of the platforms that kept collecting lots of data around antibodies, those are much more developed in industry because of course that's how they've been thinking about this problem for a long time. So that that's kind of where our experimental input comes from is mostly in that kind of way through that kind of collaboration or co-supervision kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Those, those co-supervision and co-advising relationships can be really powerful in terms of, uh, you know, kind of blending because there's, you know, I, I, I know it, I've experienced it too. It's, it's so much to be able to, um, try to, do everything all in one place. It's it's almost impossible. And so those uh yeah, that that's a, a phenomenal network that you've you've got going. I was just gonna say, yeah, I was gonna say, and also given that I discovered very early on in my career that I wasn't very good at doing experiments, I don't feel I should be in charge of a lab. So collaboration was definitely the way for me. <laughs> that's great. And and speaking of um you know, I know, I know you you were doing some other things before uh, the focus on antibodies. What what took you to antibodies? What were you doing before, and how did it bring you here? I think, I mean, it starts from what I was saying in terms of my doctorate. I have always been really interested in proteins. Um, I think they're um, they're totally amazing. The shapes and structures they can make, the fact that they cover such a wide range of functions, and can do so many amazing things. And I couldn't tell you exactly when, but I was at a conference talking to someone and they asked me if it was possible to do the tools we were then developing, which were, you know, I would say nowhere near as good as the levels that we're getting to now. But whether any of these would be useful with antibodies because they could see lots of potential there. And that was really what kicked all of this off. I went to start to have a look at, you know, antibody space. I knew what an antibody was. And what you find um, for someone who comes from my kind of background, of course, in one sense, they're a magic system to think about because actually they're a really well-studied system. Comparatively speaking, there's a lot of data about them and we understand a lot, not in terms of everything, but in a lot in terms of you know, their general shapes, their functions, um, what parts of them is the binding site. It's relatively easy to collect large amounts of data about them and be able to kind of combine computation and experiment in that way. So I think for me, they just became this really interesting system that allows me to explore lots of the problems I was interested in. I should say that some of my lab still work on wider problems than just kind of antibodies and antibodies and TCRs. We also look at other more general cases within proteins, and we also look at small molecules binding to proteins. So there's, there's a bit more breadth there still, but the underpinning factor for me is this understanding of how proteins do what they do um, embedded within it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, because I do antibody research also, and one of the amazing things about them is that they just, there's so many possibilities and they work in so many different ways. Uh, you know, it's, it's, we found that it can be sometimes hard to, you know, that as soon as you, as soon as you make some rule, oh, antibodies do this or antibodies do that, 
you end up, somebody finds another antibody out there somewhere that breaks that rule. So it, it keeps us on our toes. It's a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I think that's a really good description of it. It feels like this is a space where actually we sort of understand it. And then the more you get into it, the less the less you feel like you understand. But that makes it really good fun to work in and really exciting. Yeah. And and even even as people are coming up with all, all sorts of uh, new fusion designs and, and new engineered constant regions and just, uh, you know, the the not only are we changing what we know, but we're also changing so fast what we can do about them. It's, it's really incredible. Um, and, and I know in, in, in that space, um, you know, the, the talk you're going to be giving is about, um, uh, machine learning and, and structure prediction. Um, maybe if you could tell us a little bit about the work that you've been doing in that area. Well, I think, I mean, my group's done quite a lot of work in um, this kind of area. We've been continuously trying to develop tools um, that allow us, and maybe structure prediction is a good place to start. So I, I presume everybody is aware of the complete change in the, you know, the perception of how, whether you could predict structures or not that came about through AlphaFold 2 and you have AlphaFold Multima and then other people's variants on this, you know, so there's OmegaFold, RosettaFold. And this general perception now is actually this is a solvable problem. This for me was a really exciting change. Part, I mean, it's exciting for everybody, but we had always built our tools on the basis of having a structure would be a really good thing because actually it's the surface of an antibody that defines how it binds, sort of defines if it will aggregate. Many of the properties you want to understand de depend on knowing that three-dimensional structure. If all you give a model is the sequence, you're asking it to sort of infer the three-dimensional structure before it infers the property. So we were always trying to say, if we put models in, structurally predict them. So now we're in a world where that kind of structure prediction is possible. And the sorts of things we've been focusing on then have become, well, if you can model, it's no good just to be able to model where it takes 20 minutes, 30 minutes to build each structure. That's fine if you want to model one protein. It's kind of fine if you even want to model a thousand proteins or maybe even a million. It becomes not fine if what you're talking about is I want to examine the properties of loads of antibodies. So I want to examine a million antibodies, you know, in the next week or so, and then another million next week and then another million. And so you, it's this development of machine learning tools that will predict, for example, structure as accurately as the best possible methods out there, but also be able to go at really high speed so you can actually use them for high throughput pipelines. And by that, I mean, they feed into potentially, you know, other machine learning tools about whether you need, how you can humanize an antibody, what you can do about its developability. And if you need a structure to make those predictions, and obviously a structure will always help, um, you want all of these pieces to be able to run at that kind of speed. And my group has focused on being able to do that. And that focus, I think, has been built off our databases, which is the other part of this, which is having the right information to be able to build those tools off. So, for example, we've for a long time now run the structural antibody database, which has got all of the publicly available antibody data and all the nanobodies. And we have kind of observed antibody space, which has got it's nowhere near all, but a very large number of carefully curated sets of antibody sequences where people have sequenced heavy and light chain or paired sequences. I think we're well over 2 billion in that database now of data points. So once you've got that kind of size of data, 
You need models that can run fast enough on it to be able to use it or even just to be able to ingress it in some way so that then those models are useful for prediction as you start testing hypotheses and you're not limited to testing small numbers of hypotheses. You can literally test millions of antibodies. Wow, that's amazing. That's really amazing. Um, when it when it comes to the data that you're using, um, you know, where where does that come from? And and you know, do you have kind of like quality tiers for it? Is there a you know, what, what, where where does it all come from? And and how do you how does it all come together? So the data for us has been, I, and I think it's one of the biggest issues sitting in the field. So for us. Um, we're trying to use as far as possible publicly available data that we can make publicly available to everyone else. Because actually one of the ways of driving this field is to make sure there is enough publicly available data to do these questions. And I would argue for many of these questions, there is not. So if you try and see if there's enough publicly available data of binding affinity for antibodies, once you start saying, I want relatively clean data and you know I want the antibodies to be non-redundant, you're in maybe a thousand data points, which is never going to be enough to drive a powerful machine learning model to predict binding affinity. I mean, that's just far too few for that kind of general model if we really think about it. So our data is really what's publicly available. And a big part of my group's work with these databases that I've been mentioning, and there are a few others from the group, is that work of trying to make it clean and consistent so that it, it makes it possible for people to take the data and directly use it within a modeling scenario. My example I always give, even though it's a sort of it's an obvious one and it's a bit of a long time ago now, was SABDAB, so our database of antibody structures, was built completely out of the frustration that if you typed the word antibody into the PDB, you didn't get all the structures of antibodies. You got some of them, you got some other stuff. And then even if you did manage to pull them all out, there was no automatic way to identify whether they had an antigen bound, what it was bound to of the components within the, the crystal unit. And beyond that, of course, you then they weren't numbered consistently. So they were very hard to take and read into anything else you wanted to do. And so with structures, SABDAB is part of the solution to that. But the same is true if you think about antibody sequence data or any other data format. It, a lot of the work is actually about turning it into something that's been consistently processed and can be consistently read into some form of compute so that it can be used to train the models and do whatever anyone wants to be able to do with it to make kind of better predictions of properties. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, yeah, I, it, it sounds like a, a lot of data wrangling work that had to be done up front in order to get uh just getting the data sets put together to to run these algorithms and that's that's impressive that you've been able to do it to that to that level yeah and and i think the second part of that which was really a learning for us as we started to do this is the skill is not to do that data wrangling once and put out some static data set. The skill is to say, can I write code that automates that data wrangling as far as possible so I can keep a continuously updating data set? Because, of course, the models are always improved by more data. And so, of course, if we can put more data in, we will get better and better results out. So being able to have as far as possible an automated pipeline for that type of data wrangling, which is hard. And, you know, there are many groups who try and do various parts of this, and we've done some of it. But that, I think, is a real important thing and, you know, sort of an underrepresented skill because people tend to get more kudos for writing a machine learning model when actually, if nobody had done the data, it doesn't matter how clever you are, you can't do it with no data if we're using machine learning as our technique. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
And, you know, going back a, a, a few years, I know that um, a lot of the structural prediction models of the past really got tripped up on the CDR3 region, those, those loops of the antibody that have, you know, no known structure, or at least did not appear to have a known structure given the data available. Um, have you, has your group seen a lot of progress in structural prediction of those untemplated CDR3 loops? Are we starting to see commonalities in terms of their, their orientations? Um, just curious where, where things are now that, now that uh, we've got more data than we used to. So uh, the prediction of CDR3s, um, CDRH3s in particular, because that's the, the very difficult part, has improved a great deal, but it is still not at the level of the rest of the antibody. You are now, um, for those who are familiar with this kind of work, you're looking at average RMSDs, which are under three angstroms for these. But that is not a low enough kind of, you know, that, that's not low enough that these things are now well predicted and you'd want to think about that as being a good model for using for docking or, you know, other things. I think this leads to another part of the important things to think about with these models, something that we focused a lot on actually, which is trying to give people estimates of the error of the output we are giving them. And so with the CDR3s trying to say, okay, we think we've predicted this one well, which might mean actually this whole antibody model is good enough to use for kind of docking or, or looking at it in other ways or comparisons across, you know, is it the similar or different structure from others? And in other cases, yes, we've made a model, but no, I wouldn't use it for very much if I was you because we think that this is a poor prediction. I think we are the other issue with um, CDRH3, which is it's sort of a massive elephant in the room, but nobody quite knows how to address it is there is a kind of, um, when you're doing the structure prediction, the only way we can check whether we're getting it right or wrong is by a comparison to crystal structures. And that's because that's the experimental data that's available. And occasionally it might be a cryo-EM structure, it might be NMR, but that's what we've got. So we're comparing to what effectively are static pictures of the H3. And there is still up for debate, and it is still a debate about exactly how much flexibility there might be in any given H3, and therefore predict, training our models to predict this single kind of crystal confirmation might not be the optimal endpoint. But until we have experimental data to, to predict against, it's very difficult to know exactly what that should be. So I find this quite a difficult question on the grounds that I think we are now a lot better at predicting H3 than we were even kind of three or four years ago. I mean, the the improvement even from the original, so AlphaFold 2's original release to the types of models we are seeing now for H3 women, I guess we're only a couple of years later, there's been a significant improvement in our ability to predict them. So it's coming and we're getting better, but there is potentially an important piece we're missing, but we don't have the experimental data to know exactly what we are missing in terms of that flexibility piece and, and you know whether they have multiple confirmations in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And and I, I I really like the approach that you're taking where you're uh kind of imputing not just not just okay, here's here's a hundred thousand models, but you know, also kind of assigning a confidence score to them. Um, I think that's a, a, a really valuable thing, uh, especially as the as the amount of data expands. Um, yeah, that's incredible. Uh I, when it comes to multiple confirmations that you mentioned, um, you know how is that how is that studied? I know that's that's a phenomenally different a phenomenally difficult problem, um, yeah. you know, and has been for 
forever and probably will be. I'm just curious what your take is on it. To be honest, I don't think, I mean, the people are studying, but it's very difficult to get experimental data on this. So one of the things we did a few years ago was to do an analysis of just finding all of the antibodies, and we looked at TCRs as well, um, where they had been, for whatever reason, crystallized more than once. Now, that might be a bound and unbound form, or it might be just they've been crystallized twice because that happens, you know, more than one structure. And then you can make it even more extreme than that. I can forget about, let's just take H3 as an example. I can forget about all of the rest of the antibody and just see if that same H3 sequence has been crystallized more than once. And do I see that in different conformations? So it's a, even if it's bound and unbound form, forget that there's another thing there. Just that means it had two different shapes. It had a shape when it was unbound and it has another shape when it's bound. Now that bound shape might be stabilized by the occurrence of the antigen, but just kind of doing that study. And you can look at NMR data where you've got multiple confirmations as well. And you can um, starting to be able to look at cryo-EM for this kind of thing as well. And what we saw and what still seems to be mostly what you see is the vast majority of antibodies, if you ask that question in terms of what do we actually have of structural data, don't move. As in, there's very little motion of any of the loops, but some do a lot. So you have some where you can find four or five different confirmations of it, and then you can have others that have been crystallized eight, nine, or ten times, and it's always exactly the same. But this is almost still at the level of anecdotal because, of course, even though we have a very large number of antibody structures, actually you need way more to kind of get a feeling for what, what this really means because the ones that where we can see different confirmations, I can probably make a confident statement that you know, it's not necessarily that that's mobile, but it has more than one confirmation exists for that loop. The ones where I only have a single structure, I can say nothing about, and that's the vast majority. And the ones where I have, you know, a couple of structures, but it's the same shape, I can say it's more likely to be sort of static and only have that shape. But of course, if we solved it another 30 times, we might find another shape. Um, I can't rule that out. There's no you know, we don't have the experiment for that. Wow. So experimentally, this is a really difficult thing to probe in a way that you can actually use to train something. Because the other thing is you have a lot of evidence just from people sort of looking at particular structures or even observing a change in behavior saying, well, that must be that the shape has changed. But unless you actually have those kind of structures, it's very hard to know what to do with that apart from people saying, well, we think the structure has changed. And I, you know, that's a, it's an unknowable what to do with that as you try and train a model to predict that kind of thing. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's good to have tough problems to keep us busy, right? Yeah, I think that would be fair. I think that one's a very tough problem and it's something, you know, I hope I can get to work with lots of different experimental groups on as well. Cause I think that's the, a lot of the answer to that is going to have to be some form of experimentation to help us understand what we need to predict from the computational side as well. Yeah. Yeah. What, what would you say is, is the next step for uh, the, the data analysis and, and um, getting, getting us to where we want to be in terms of antibody design? So, I mean, I guess this, you sort of said data analysis at the beginning of that. I think I'll, I'll do the data question first and then maybe think about some of the other bits. I've already mentioned, I think in the public domain, there isn't very much data about many of the properties that you know, people would like models to predict. And the other issue, which I have seen a lot of, is that the way experimentation is currently done is a focus on a 
you know, whatever your sing, your your target is. So I have a target protein I'm trying to hit. I make loads of antibodies that relatively similar to one another that all hit that target at that site. And I calculate lots of properties of them. But of course, that's not very good for a general model of the behavior of antibodies. If I now want to go over to a different part of antibody space, that model is unlikely. If I use only that data, that model is unlikely to be very good. So one of the questions I think in terms of data that's really interesting is how do we explore it as a whole? How do we start thinking about how do I collect data that tells me more about the general properties of antibody space so I can write a better model that will work when I move from target to target rather than every time I move target, um, suddenly I have to do hundreds and hundreds of experiments to understand enough about antibodies in this little tiny part of space because um, nothing I have done before is very helpful or predictive. So I guess that's my my data challenge sits there to everyone. Um, <laughs> Sounds good. Well, well, we'll work on it as best we can. Um, <laughs> I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. We'll try and we'll try and keep up. <laughs> um, when it when it comes to the blinded challenges, um, you know, because I know that those have been done in the past for structure prediction. Um, you know, where are we now with blinded challenges and, you know, is there, is there anything on the horizon for, um, new blinded challenges that are going to take into account some of the recent developments in, um, AI and machine learning for modeling? So there've been a couple of blind challenges of structure prediction for antibodies, but those really predate all of the newer methods. So they're, they're, they're well before, um, you know, the advent of AlphaFold 2 and the use of deep learning to do the antibody structure prediction. I think actually blind challenges are really useful in some sense because they also give us a really a much cleaner statement of how good the field actually is. So CASP, which was the um, comparative assessment of protein structure prediction, so the one that AlphaFold kind of announced its arrival at um, because it was a blind challenge and they could put their program in and show how well they worked. Um, the first few years of that, actually, what they did was demonstrated that people needed to sort of clean up their code and think about issues within it um, because the blind challenge forced you to do that. So it forced checks on whether we were generating things that were effectively junk sometimes and kind of understanding where we really were in terms of our ability to predict. I think there's a massive place for blind challenges. And I guess it refers a bit back to my data question earlier. That kind of blind challenge with machine learning um, is interesting in some ways because what you really want to do is to have everyone train on the same data and then test on the same kind of blind tests as they come up. Right. Because, of course, people are training on different data. The difference between the models might be the data rather than the um, kind of model. And knowing which it is, what's causing it, it will be really important. So I think this will be a really interesting thing. I think we will start to see more and more of this. And I hope we will start to see some of it coming out in the kind of um, antibody field and, you know, biotherapeutics more more generally as well. Yeah, absolutely. So in, in you know, kind of looking forward, um, you know, based on the direction of the field, you know, in the long term, where would you say that that this work is going to end up and and maybe how long will, do you think it'll take to get there? Uh, to the first part of that, I find easy to answer. I think there is enough evidence now and enough kind of that there's published work on this and, you know, the, the stuff that's coming through. I am absolutely convinced 
the, you will be able to do the complete design, for example, of an antibody on a computer. That's going to happen. Um, it's not an if, it's a when. Now, the complete design is probably quite a long way away, but I think that it's within the next three or four years where the entire kind of pipeline and process of how we think about developing a therapeutic antibody will start to change as opposed to adding in little computational tools that might help me make decisions along the current process, I will say, actually, I wouldn't do the process like this at all now because these computational tools are so useful. I will run these computational tools before I even begin. I will change the set of experiments I would have run. I will, you know, it's like kind of um, completely changing how you build a vehicle. So mm -hmm. saying we used to do it like this, which that's no longer sensible given how much the design has changed. We should actually do it in this way. Mm -hmm. So I think it's hard, <laughs> but I think it's, it's just inevitable in some sense that given the collective effort within the field and the huge interest that this is coming, you know, you can, you can feel it. Yeah. Yeah. And until we get there, what would you, what would you say the waypoints are or the path, you know, is there something that, you know, okay, now we can do, X and then Y, and then on our way to that, that long-term goal? I think some of the things are experimental as well as computational. Um, one of the things I think, if we're talking about antibodies, one of the things that will help is the ability to do paired sequencing. Um, one of my examples for this is there are a lot of language models that have been written for antibodies. And people have got excited about language models because you have the big protein sequence language models that have been um, released by Facebook and Google. And, you know, they, they appear to be very useful in terms of, of the kind of information they give you and the inputs they can be used for. But an antibody isn't a single chain. And all of our current language models are like a, a VH language model or a, sometimes somebody has bothered to build also a VL language model. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like, you know, let, let's start somewhere quite sensible. We know this is a paired thing. So actually, I think that increase in paired sequencing data is a big part of what will help. I think that the improvement in structure prediction is kind of indicative of what else is going to go around that. We're starting to see, and people have used, have used them with small molecules for a while, and you're starting to see them in terms of there are publications around the concept of doing this with proteins in general and also with antibodies, this idea of taking your antigen and having your target site. And if we were working with small molecules, you would do a sort of generative design in there. So you would make small molecules that fitted in the pocket that you were interested in. Mm -hmm. There is no conceptual reason. There are many data reasons and kind of complicated, you know, it's quite hard computationally to run this and mathematically might be a little bit harder. But conceptually, you can imagine a generative model where I place I build an antibody that will fit to my epitope of interest just as a full generative model. It's just building it against the antigen and can do that. And we're starting to see that. And the structure prediction points that this might be feasible, that kind of thing. And then you have the models that people have been thinking about for a long time, but these need to get better, which are the models of properties. So you take your developability properties, you know, can you get it to express well, keep its aggregation down, keep it human? And that's a multi-parameter optimization problem. And when that becomes interesting, and you know, this is kind of imagining the full computational pipeline, is do that generative model. So I'm generating the structure of an antibody directly against the antigen I want it to bind to. So that sounds cool. But I only allow that antibody sequence to change in ways that are you know, within the bounds of what I think will 
not aggregate, will express well, is human, you know, pick your pick your properties. It will be specific, so it won't have specificity issues. Mm-hmm. However, you want ability properties, yeah. Yeah. But instead of those being a an afterthought, they are part of the entire process as you do this. If your models are good enough, you can then just you're designing in the features you want rather than trying to retrofit them later. Um, that kind of way of thinking about it. Wow. That sounds wonderful. Sounds marvelous. I think, and I, I, I agree with you. I think, I think we're going to be there soon. Everything is just absolutely exploding in this space. And um, yeah, I think, I think, and, and it's actually, and I, you, you may have a better uh, feel on it than me, but, it's sometimes hard as an academic to understand where we are as an entire community because so much of the progress in in a lot of these things like developability prediction and things like that are kind of locked into different uh, siloed um, databases at, at, at various uh, company organizations. Um, so uh, that's you know I, I I think if we if we did somehow have a way to aggregate all of that data we could get to that developability pathway for example pretty fast. Yeah, I think that's a one of my it, it's like it, it it's obvious you know when I and I'm sure you do as well you talk to the pharmaceutical companies they actually have very large amounts of this data in various formats and, and you're like if there was a way we could tap that from even just a few of the big pharma, but, you know, from all of them, I feel like you could, the progress you could make is so rapid, partly also because they have also explored slightly different parts of the space on average. So you will get more of this kind of general coverage than we would get from any, even any individual farmer on their own, even with their, you know, relatively big data sets for this. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, yeah, there's, there's phenomenal things that are, are happening internally as well. Um, that are are really exciting and and so um, and I think it I think it all it all will uh, uh, come together um, at some point uh, but it just um, yeah it's uh, we're 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 kind of taking it tackling the problem from many many different angles if that makes sense yeah and I, I, I mean part of me thinks that's one of the things that makes it fun as well um, being able to there are things that you know, with the kind of different pressures of academia, there are problems that I can think about that perhaps inside a pharma company would get less attention because they're more focused on trying to develop a specific biologic for a specific problem. And I don't have to worry about that. I have to worry about papers and things. So that helps, I think, us to get a really good, lots of exciting things happening in the different areas as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So one last question for you as we uh, close the podcast. Um, what's your favorite thing that you're hoping to do or see while you're in Barcelona? Uh, I so I should start this by being you know very grown up and go apart from listening to all the amazing talks and, and speaking to all the great people I'm hoping to see at the conference. So obviously, apart from that, I think it's probably to go and see um, the Gaudi Cathedral there, the Sagrada Familia, because I have been once before, but I am also aware that it changes a lot through time because they keep mending, keep building it and building it. So I'm, it'd be great to see it another time. Yeah, absolutely. Cathedral building, uh, both uh, in Barcelona and with antibody design and structure prediction. Um, yeah, both both continually adding, continually developing and, and getting to great places. So awesome. All right. With that, thank you so much, Charlotte, for taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been really good fun. 
All right. If you want to chat more with Charlotte, please catch up with her at Pegs Europe in Barcelona. And uh, have a great day, everyone. Thank you. If you would like to attend any of CHI's upcoming protein engineering conferences, use the discount code the Chain Podcast, all one word, to save 10% off your event registration.